now almost a year and a half anyway we have been going through the gospel of Luke and Luke is writing this gospel primarily for us to know that Jesus is who he says he is there's testimony after testimony through this narrative that confirms the identity of Jesus Christ Luke is also writing this letter so that we can know how to follow Jesus You know, so often people think that being a Christian is doing what other Christians do. Being a Christian is doing what Jesus does. In fact, you can be misled looking at other Christians. Other Christians can lead you in a wrong direction. So we don't follow other Christians, we follow Christ. Luke is also writing this letter so that we can have confidence in Christ. We can be bold in our faith. We do not have to be timid about who we are as Christians. We can be very bold. And I think if we were to identify where this sermon today would land, out of those three reasons that Luke wrote, I think it would be in the area of boldness. We can be emboldened to follow Jesus. The cause of what is being revealed. As we come to the end of chapter 23, let me confess to you that I almost just breezed over this last section. I was going to present kind of a summary of the burial of Jesus. Let's get on to the fun stuff. Let's get to the resurrection. Because who wants to spend their Sunday morning talking about a funeral? Commentaries seem to breeze over it. Very little attention is given to these last few verses of chapter 23. And I almost was one of those that said, you know what, we're just going to summarize it, let's move on. Because I think that it's easy to kind of look at this passage and go, well, there's really not a lot of pertinent information here. Maybe there's not a lot of application for me. And so let's just get on to the resurrection, the meat. But then, as I begin to look at these last few verses, I realize Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four record the burial of Jesus and they all record it distinctly and with their own unique detail. And I thought, you know, there may be more to this. Let's just dig deeper into what God wants to show us. I confess to you that I'm borrowing a title, the title for my sermon from John MacArthur because I agree with him about why God or what God is wanting to show us around the details around the burial of Jesus. And so the title of today's sermon is The Supernatural Burial of of Jesus. The Supernatural Burial of Jesus. And here's why we have this title. Brothers and sisters, God wants us to know that there is never a time, never a time, never a time, not even one millisecond of a day, when God is not working to accomplish His will. This theme is very similar to what we are starting on Wednesday nights in the book of Esther. 
You'll never find a more ordinary common book in the Old Testament than the book of Esther. No miracles, nothing supernaturally displayed, no mention of God, not once. No interaction between God and his people. A very ordinary, very common book. And yet, you can't read the book of Esther without seeing the hand of God working masterfully and wonderfully behind the scenes. It is so clearly evident that it's remarkable. Essentially, we know that God historically works in two ways, generally speaking. Number one, God works in the world through miracles. A miracle is God accomplishing His purposes and His will through suspending natural laws and natural processes. He suspends those laws to accomplish His will. When God created the world and when God created the universe, He also created it with law to govern the things of the universe. You have heard of the law of thermodynamics. You've heard of the law of gravity. We didn't come up with those laws. We discovered those laws. God is the one who came up with those laws and his laws govern the universe that you and I live in today. But whenever a miracle takes place, what God does is he interrupts that law. He suspends that law and we Call that a miracle, something that cannot be scientifically explained. Throughout the Bible, and on rare occasions, I might add, miracles are extremely rare. They really are. In the grand scheme of the world history, miracles are extremely rare. But on rare occasion, God interrupts and suspends natural law to accomplish His purposes. One of, the, one of the greatest miracles that I always go back to in the Old Testament is the parting of the Red Sea. And I think it's so remarkable. Because when you think about the parting of the Red Sea, what literally took place was God interjected himself into space and time, and he literally peeled back waters from this mighty source of water where there was a wall of water standing over here on this side, a wall of water standing on this side, it was wide enough that two million Hebrews could cross over. But not only did we see the miracle of this phenomenal uh, event taking place in the waters being parted, we also see that they crossed over on dry ground. That means that whenever two, th two million Israelites crossed the Red Sea, they did not step in mud. They weren't getting stuck in the, in the, in the miry clay. No, their feet were stepping on dry ground when they walked over. Two miracles in one event. The same God, the same people, not long after that, God was providing for them miraculously by giving them bread from heaven every single day for 40 years to sustain them. Their shoes did not wear out for 40 years. Their clothes did not wear out for 40 years. Some of you probably have some clothes that you had 40 years ago still in your closet. You say, my clothes have not worn out. You haven't worn them in 40 years. They wore theirs every day. And they didn't wear out. Those are miracles, supernatural 
events that took place where God suspends law. There's no scientific explanation in the New Testament, particularly in the life of Christ and his disciples. We see this influx of miracles. And what Christ is doing is he's using miracles as a way to verify his identity. To be able to say you're God, you better have some way to back it up. And Jesus did. He performed miracles. His disciples performed miracles. Yet when we consider miracles in the grand scheme of the world's history, we must confess there aren't that many miracles. God doesn't do this all the time. Perhaps at least not as much as we would like for him to do miracles. Many of you probably pray for miracles. Let me remind you of something because the most common way that God works, and it's still miraculous, it's just not as maybe perhaps spectacular as we would like it to be, but God works not just through miracles, but he works through providence. Through providence. God works in the world through providence. And this is the very common, ordinary way in which God is working to accomplish his will. Please know this, there's never a second of the day that God is not working providentially. And what that means is, is that God is working without interrupting natural laws or suspending natural processes. God is accomplishing his purposes by taking the infinite number of words and attitudes and actions and behaviors of people all over the world from different backgrounds, different languages, different socioeconomic statuses, different ethnicities. God is using this infinite number of attitudes, words, actions, and behaviors to accomplish his plan. Many people who are acting unwittingly, not even knowing that God is working in their life in that moment. God is doing things. When you think about it, this is really the greatest miracle of all time because God is doing something very unique. He's taking ungodly people. We learned this Wednesday night. He is taking ungodly people. He's taking unlikely people. He's working in unorthodox ways. And we also see that he is doing unlikely things using events, unanticipated events, to accomplish his will. God is master architect working in this world. We believe Paul when he said in Christ, we see this in Ephesians 1.11, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who, listen to this brothers and sisters, works all things according to the counsel of his will. He's working all things according to the counsel of his will. God is using every thought, every word, every action of every second of every day. And he's weaving together a masterful plan to accomplish his will. When we come to the place of Christ's death, it would be easily assumed that for this brief moment in history, There is absolutely no work of God at all in the world because he's dead. Jesus has died. He is not here. So clearly, here is a moment in history that some might assume that God is not working. That could not be any further from the truth. In this passage, I admit to you, we do not see any miracles. There is no supernatural spectacular event taking place, but there is a supernatural funeral underway. 
or something remarkable to be seen as we see the master planner weaving his wheel, using people who are just doing their job, some who are following the hatred of their heart, some following the love of their heart, and are accomplishing God's very will. We see first the soldiers. I want you to hold your place in the Gospel of Luke, but I want to look at this chronologically. So we're going to look over in John chapter 19. If you don't want to flip there, it should be on the screen behind me and in front of you. And so we're going to look at this chronologically and we're going to focus on the soldiers. Remember Luke is kind of like this one who is the master choreographer and he's pointing the spotlight on different individuals. And we see the soldiers here. Listen to what it says in John 19, starting in verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation... And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. Remember, Jesus and the two criminals are on the cross. This is on a Friday. The Sabbath is a Saturday. He says here, the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Well, let's understand what's going on. In order to do this, you and I go by a calendar. When I ask an easy date, if you get it wrong, leave. What is December the 25th? Christmas. Christmas. What is Christmas? All right, everybody can stay. People were scared to death to say anything. I don't want to leave. December the 25th. What day does December the 25th land on every year? <laughs> it's different every year, right? Every seven years, though, it's going to land on a Sunday, right? And so it rotates. One year it's going to be this, the next year it's going to be this, and so it moves around the calendar in that way. The Jews also had a calendar. Passover also landed on, a, landed on the date Nisan 14. This particular week was very special. It was Holy Week, Passover week. Passover always lands in the month of Nisan on Passover day. The day it's celebrated is Nisan 14. Happened to land on a Saturday. That's their Sabbath. That's why the scripture says this was a high Sabbath. This was a very special Sabbath day because like Christmas landing on a Sunday for believers, the Passover landing on a Sabbath makes it a very special day. Do the math. Jesus is hanging on the cross, Nisan 13. If you translate that over in the calendar of our calendar today, by the way, that's not December the 25th. We don't know when the actual day actually is but that's just a date we chose. This is a special date, and this is a day called a high day. And since it was a Passover, since it was on a Saturday, they could not leave bodies hanging on a cross outside Jerusalem where they're going to be celebrating the Passover. This would be a defilement of the Passover. So they've got to have these bodies taken down. Remember, Jesus and two other criminals are on the cross on Friday. And if you're following the timeline, Jesus is put on the cross at 9 a.m. He's there for three hours. At 12 noon, the dark cloud or the, the dark skies appear, the sun fails, and it's dark for a period of three hours, all the way to the time of 3 p.m. And at 3 p.m., lights comes on and Jesus expires himself. He said this, no man takes my life from me. I willfully give it up. He expired himself, three o'clock. He goes on the cross for six hours. 
Some of you think, man, that's a long time until you understand the history of a Roman crucifixion. History books record for us on average, on average, bodies would hang on the cross for two to three days until they eventually died. They would stand there, they would hang there for two to three days alive until finally they would either bleed out or they would suffocate. That was torture. It was brutal. And this was the expectancy. The Jews are expecting this to take several days. They know they've got to do something because they don't want to defile the Sabbath. Notice the hypocrisy of the Jews. It's okay to plot, lie, and murder, but let's not defile the Sabbath day by leaving dead bodies hanging on a cross. Hypocrites on display. So they go to Pilate. They need to do something. They ask permission to break the legs of the criminals, Jesus along with them, so that they could quickly put them to death. Listen to what it says, 32 to 34 of John 19. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first. Now, by the way, some of you are asking, what do the soldiers have to do with any of this? Listen, the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with Jesus. But when they had came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the other but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. Two things the soldiers did and didn't do. They didn't break his legs. They did pierce him with a spear. That's key to remember. Now, they break the legs of the criminals on each side of Jesus and by doing so, here's what they're doing. They're speeding up the process of death. Remember, they're hanging on a cross. Their arms are out like this with spikes holding them into the wood. So they take spikes, they hammer them through the skin, through the tendons, near the bones, past the bones, into the wood. They hang like this. Their feet are placed on a board, typically on top of each other. They take one spike and stick through both feet. The criminals who were hanging on the tree, those who would be hanging on the tree, going through this after having a beaten, after bleeding out of every pore of their body, they're hanging there, exhausted, tired, beat, hurt, pain. But what keeps them alive is their legs holding them up. Because the moment they let down, they're pulled like this. And when it pulls the tension, the, leg, the arms are pulled out, which caves in the chest cavity, which collapses the lungs and leads to asphyxiation. And so whenever you break the legs, they can't push up with their legs. They literally take these mauls and they crush their legs to where the bones are completely shattered and they cannot lift themselves up. They fall down. And when they fall down, it's almost instant death by asphyxiation. Cruel, heartless, and at the same time, gracious because they don't have to sit there for two to three days the death needed to be sped up. This is what they did. And it led to almost instant death. So they crushed the two criminals on each side of Jesus. And when they come to him, something remarkable has happened. He's dead. He's dead. They know he's dead. Now you've got to remember, these soldiers have seen 
probably thousands of deaths. It's their job to kill people. They are executioners. They are, this is their profession. This is what they are good at. They know a dead body when they see a dead body. And so rather than just not taking their job serious, they noticed that he was dead and they refrained from breaking any bone in his body. Now in a minute, you're going to start connecting the dots. But they, to confirm his death, take a spear and they pierce him. And out comes, we see from Scripture, water and blood. If he had not been dead, he would have most certainly convulsed with any life in him. He would have screeched or yelled or given some sign of life. But the only thing that comes out of him is blood and water. Now, why is all this important? Why do we need to see this detail? Well, you need to see it for what John goes on to say. He explains why. He's giving us the detail, and then he gives us the explanation of why it's there in the first place. Look at what it says in verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. This is for your belief. It's for you to be able to know without a shadow of a doubt that everything in Scripture is 100% true. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Let me show you how remarkable this is, brothers and sisters. 800 years before Jesus died, it was written down in Psalm 34 and verse 20 that not one of the Messiah's bones will be broken. Not one. And the reason for this was because of all the way back in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 46, it says that in order for a Passover lamb to be able to, to be used in the Passover, not one bone of that lamb could be broken. It had to be a perfect spotless lamb. And so they were strict on this. And the scripture affirms 800 years before Messiah that not one bone would be broken. Now I want you to think about these guys who are cruel, heartless. They probably enjoy, this is probably their favorite part of the job. They're brutal. These men were beasts. And taking that maul and crushing those legs, but something held them back. But then not only did something hold them back from doing something, something prompted them to do something else. And that is they pierced him these things were done that scripture might be fulfilled, not one bone broken, but yet he would be pierced and they would look upon him because of Zechariah 2.10 says that they will look upon the one whom they pierce. Unwittingly, these soldiers are being used to accomplish God's plan. Folks, he's dead. And yet, even though Christ has died, God is still working. Kind of shows us you can't kill God, right? He is still working. And He is working to accomplish His Word and His will. So that we can look some 2,000 years later and validate that everything that the Scriptures say in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And folks, I'm here to tell you this morning, if even one prophecy in the Old Testament fails, none of it's true. It all falls apart. 
If they would have broken one bone, Jesus would not be the Savior and the Scripture would be in error and we can all go home. That's how serious this is. And not only did they not break a bone, they did exactly what Scripture said. They would pierce him and they would look upon him. And so here we see these soldiers are unwittingly being used of God to affirm and confirm what we already know about Scripture to be true, that this is the Word of God, that Jesus is the Son of God, and we today can have bold confidence in exactly who He is. He's controlling not only His death, folks, He's controlling His own funeral. He's controlling everything that would happen after His death. And if we think about this for just a moment, there are a lot of people who think that their life is just aimlessly drifting around in this world with no purpose. But the Bible shows us that everything is working together as part of a bigger plan. It's way bigger than us, way bigger than me. Our actions and our words, whether we realize it or not, are being used by God to accomplish His greatness in our lives and in the lives of other people. How about this verse that we all know and love so much in Romans 8, 28? Paul said this to some believers in Rome many years ago. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Isn't this true today? That God is working in all things and in our lives to accomplish his purpose for his own glory. You may not think that your words matter. You may not think that your actions matter. And by the way, you can do things unwittingly. You can do things never having known what you did. It can be good things. It can be bad things. But God is working through all things to accomplish His purposes. God is using us at our jobs, just going to work every day. You may not think there's anything to it. I guarantee you there's somebody at work watching you. Your children in your home, the people that you have relationships with, the people that you meet out in public, the things that you say, the things that you do, you don't realize it, but God is using these things. And some of you, you may feel like, you know what, I feel like my whole life has been a waste. God's a time, a God of redeeming time as well. God can take every bad time you've ever had and redeem it for good. Because nothing is wasted with God, not one millisecond. God creates every second and he creates it with a purpose. He said, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. He's made this day and every second that belongs to it. And he's using it. It's not wasted. And so he gives us confidence by knowing this. Now we come to the body of Christ being removed from the cross and we're introduced to a new character. And by the way, this is going to go sort of quickly as we start into this passage. So bear with me. Look at what it says starting in verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. Keep in mind, Jesus was on the cross. The Jewish leaders, those who were part of the Sanhedrin, those who are priests, perhaps, they have to go to Pilate and they've got to ask permission, have your soldiers break his legs. Okay? So they're at Pilate's or at the governor's mansion and they're asking for permission. And then we see Jewish, or see Joseph, who's also a member of the same court. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's part of the council with these guys. He has a great reputation among all of these 71 other members. 
And he's also going to the governor's mansion to seek an audience with the governor over the body of Jesus. Look at the details, folks. Notice how Joseph is described. He's a righteous man. He's part of the Jewish court. We're going to see that he has a, he's a reputable man. He's, a, he's a, a man of good reputation with everybody. He did not vote with the council in their plot to kill Jesus. He was a naysayer. He was a no vote. So if you can just imagine this, you probably had at least two on the council, Nicodemus and you have Joseph of Arimathea. These two men probably did not consent. Now, they weren't vocal, I doubt it. We're going to see in Scripture they weren't. But they didn't go along. They didn't consent to this evil plot to kill Jesus. But this is how the Bible describes him. But what's also interesting is how he's not described. This is the only place in Scripture that you're ever going to meet Joseph of Arimathea. He's mentioned nowhere else in Scripture. We have no other details about this character. He just shows up at the funeral of Jesus. And that's it. That's all we have. And what this record ultimately shows us, and then we'll break it down from there, is that Jesus dying on the cross was not God's plan B. You see, there are many people who really believe this. Let me give you a thought about Jesus Christ that many people hold to. Many people believe that Jesus came to the Jews. He did. But what they say is he came to his own, his own didn't receive him, and so he had to come up with a different plan. Because the Jews rejected Jesus, he had to now die on the cross, thus making a way for the Gentiles, that's you and me, to be able to trust in Jesus Christ. And so dying on the cross was plan B. Couldn't be further from the truth. And let me show you how we know this. Number one, Jesus' parents were Jewish, Mary and Joseph, and they believed. They believed. Elizabeth and Zechariah, also Jewish, believed. Zechariah especially believed. Jesus was born not long afterwards. They take him to the temple. A priest by the name of Simeon takes Jesus up, recognizes that he's the Savior, and blesses him as being the Savior both to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And then not only do we see that, we see the disciples are all Jewish. We see uh, not only that in the disciples, but we see thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are Jews profess Jesus as Lord and Savior. Especially after Jesus died on the day of Pentecost, we see several thousand Jews in Jerusalem trusting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So no, this was not plan B. It was plan A the whole time. It was always the plan of God that Jesus Christ would go and would die on the cross. And what we see in Joseph of Arimathea is just that very same thing. These who were even serving on the Jewish council. They were believers, some were at least, at least two that we know of. All throughout the scriptures, we see that God is saving a remnant. We are introduced to all of these in what the Bible refers to these Jews as a remnant, that God has preserved some out of the many that would confess him as Lord and Savior. And we see God is still doing the same thing today, that there is a remnant of people who will acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior, a remnant of people who will call on the name of Jesus as Lord. So how do we know for sure that Joseph was, in fact, a true disciple? Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 57, it says this, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. Pretty clear. Pretty clear. Interestingly, John tells us that Joseph was a secret agent. 
A secret disciple. Listen to this in verse 38 of John 19. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Joseph is one, according to what the scriptures tell us, who is a believer, but he's being careful. He's being cautious. He's not bold in his faith while Jesus is alive. He's sort of a cowardly follower of Christ. By the way, this is not commendable. It's not commendable. But we see something happens in Joseph's life after Jesus dies. After Jesus dies, Joseph becomes emboldened in his faith. He's no longer afraid to hide his identity. He's no longer operating in the dark or in the closet, but rather he is building up courage and he's boldly going before Pilate the governor and the cat is about to be out of the bag. He is going to know that everybody will know that he is a disciple of Jesus. He is taking a public stand and the best thing that he knows that he can do is give a proper funeral for the body of Jesus. You need to understand, every person who died on the cross is considered cursed. They will never put someone who's considered cursed, the Bible says, cursed is one who hangs on the tree. A cursed death deserves a cursed burial. They assign every person who died on the cross, they assign them to a criminal's pit. They buried every one of them in the same place. That was what was assigned. That was what was proper. That was what was always done. No one who ever died a criminal's death received an honorable funeral. No one. But Jesus. But Jesus. Joseph refused for the body of Christ to be buried in such an awful way. Mark's gospel tells us this. Joseph of Arimathea, listen to this, a respected member of the council. I want you to think of a person in this church that you know that's the most respected member. Joseph was respected, looked up to, admired, sought after for counsel and wisdom and guidance. Respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. So at the same time, he's got favor with the Jews who hate God. He's also looking for the kingdom of God. He's seeking after God. He took courage and he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. And by the way, he needed courage. He needed courage because he was a respected member. Think about it. Where were the other members of the council at? Governor's palace. Where has Joseph got to go? To the governor's palace. They're there to break the legs of Jesus. He's there for the body to give him a proper, honorable burial. Two totally different reasons that they're there. Don't know if they meet there. Don't know if they cross each other one way or the other. But the cat is about to be out of the bag that Joseph is one who is following Jesus. Don't you know it would be an awkward meeting? They didn't know. What do you mean you're taking the body of Jesus? Oh, you're one of them. You're one of them. All respect about to be gone out the door. But he loves Jesus and his heart will not allow him to remain silent any longer. But there's another little piece of Joseph's story that we need to pay attention to. And folks, I'm telling you, you see this with the soldiers unwittingly, just doing their job, accomplished God's will. You're about to see that with Joseph of Arimathea simply because he was rich. Listen to this. He was rich. Matthew 27, 57 
tells us that he was rich. Matthew 27, 60 tells us that he owns his own tomb to prepare a burial for his family. This was for his ancestry. This was for his posterity. And being in rich is indicated by owning a grave. Now you look at that and you think, well, what do you mean? To own a grave like this, it was above ground. It was a, in the side of a rock mountain. They had to not only buy the piece of rock, the side of the rock mountain to be able to put the grave, but they also had to hire construction workers. On average, it took two months to one year to chisel out a room. They've got thousands of these all over the Middle East where you can literally walk into these rooms. And when you walk into these rooms, you, you walk in, you stand up and you look around and it's a giant hold, uh, hewn out hole in a rock. And then on the sides, they hewn out these, these other places of rock. They've got like three or four, sometimes five or six stacked on the side of the wall all the way around. And guess what those little areas are? They take the dead bodies and they put them in this area. They put this one and this one and this one and this one. The Jews didn't embalm. Their bodies would decay pretty quickly. What they did afterwards, they come in with these little boxes called an Asherah and they take the bones and they put them in the box and they stick them in the corner and they put a little inscription on it. That was how rich people did it. Poor people, they didn't have that. They didn't have that. People ask all the time, why didn't the disciples take the body of Jesus? Where were they going to put it? They didn't have anything to do with it. They couldn't afford it. They were poor. And so we see this rich man, he can't afford it. And we see all of these details. Why? Folks, again, 800 years prior to the death of Jesus, Isaiah gives us this detail about the suffering and death of Jesus. Listen to what he says. He says this, his grave, this is in Isaiah 53 verse nine. His grave was assigned with wicked men. In other words, he received his assignment when he died a cursed death, he was gonna receive a cursed burial. It was assigned to him that he would be buried with the other criminals. But go on with what Isaiah continues to say, yet he was with a rich man in his death. How remarkable is that? That such a small detail finds its place in Isaiah. And the only reason, folks, you and I know Joseph of Arimathea is because God wants us to connect the dots. He wants us to see the little details. He wants us to see, though he was dead, he was not gone. He was as much a work at this time of his burial as he was prior to his burial. And even after, during the resurrection, God is working in this world. And he's using some of the most unlikely people. Soldiers who are just unwittingly doing their job. A man who is rich, who is following Jesus Christ through the leading of his own love for his heart. And he's not thinking about Isaiah 53. He just knows that he's got a burial site. He knows that he loves Jesus and he wants to give him a proper burial. Joseph of Arimathea had no idea that 2,000 years later, a group of strangers would gather together in North Mississippi to mention his name and to talk about a detail through which God unwittingly used him, just following the love of his heart to embolden our faith in God, to know that there's not one second in our life that God is not working to accomplish his will and his purposes. Isn't it a beautiful thing to see how God is just weaving things providentially to accomplish his plan? Folks, For if you think for one second that God has this grand plan and he's going to throw it out there for us humans just to make it happen, heaven forbid, we're not that good. 
But God is masterful. And He is working providentially in our lives. And here's the real kicker, folks. Joseph was not having to bid for the body of Jesus. His body didn't go to the highest bidder. He was the only one who wanted the body of Jesus. And let me show you this. Had Joseph of Arimathea not taken his body, the Word of God would be a lie. Jesus would not be the Savior. And we can all pack up right now and go home because none of this would be true. That's how serious it is. You know what the Bible says? If anything is said of God that doesn't come to pass, it's a lie. That's how serious God's Word is. And that's why we pay attention to the details in Scripture. Keep in mind, too, by the way, well, was he really sacrificing a lot to take the body? He sacrificed his reputation. He probably sacrificed his place on the, on the Sanhedrin court. But you also forget one other detail. If you touch a dead body and you're a Jew on the Sabbath day, you don't get to celebrate Sabbath. And that's a cardinal sin. He had to actually spend his day on the Sabbath outside of Jerusalem, away from everybody, because he would have been defiled and could not have even went with his own family to celebrate Passover. Folks, Serious stuff taking place in these few little verses. Jam-packed full of little gems that give us confidence knowing that God is at work in the details in our lives. Sometimes just following the love of our heart for Jesus Christ, God works through that to accomplish His greater plan. You'll see, sometimes we get caught up saying, well, I need to know what God's plan is. Let me tell you what you need to know. You just need to love Jesus and follow Him. And even unwittingly, God can use you to do things that you would never have imagined. John tells us another man joins O Joseph here. It says in John chapter 19, verse 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple, but secretly, for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Oh, here's another guy. Now, we've heard of him because of John chapter 3. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. He was the one who came secretly. He was a Pharisee. He was a leader among the people. Came bearing or bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen, clothes with spices as the burial custom of Jesus. Now, these men, two men, Joseph's using his money in his grave. Nicodemus is now exposing himself. Now he's not any longer in the dark. He's coming out four o'clock in the afternoon and he is handling carefully the body of Jesus. He's bringing spices and myrrhs because they didn't embalm the bodies and so his body would begin the decay process so they would take all these spices so that it, wouldn't, it would slow down the decay process. And they would rub his body down and they would preserve it the best they could. And by the way, 75 pounds is an indication that this is what they do for the most important people. This is receiving a king's burial. And I want you to just imagine with me for a moment, these two men, his followers are standing at a distance. There's some women who are watching this. And I want you to just see them. And the Bible says that, that Joseph took him off of the cross. I want you to see Joseph taking the bloodied hand and arm of Jesus and lifting the spike. 
out of it to pull him free. Do you see how he takes his body and just carefully puts him together? And how they take him to a place in him and now Nicodemus joining with him are carefully handling this body. And you've got to understand, it says according to Jewish custom, how they would have wrapped him. Well, what they would have done is they would have taken, first of all, cloths and they would have cleaned all of the blood off of the body of Jesus. And they would have been rubbing their hands over his scars. Internal organs being seen and they're doing their best that they can to provide the proper care with the best that they can with this, this busted up and broken body. And you see these two men probably even perhaps weeping over the body of Jesus as they take care of this body, as they rub the ointments on it and put the spices in the myrrh into the wounds. And as they're trying to do their best to give him a proper burial, burial for a king. And they begin to wrap his body. And I want to remind you as we're seeing this in our minds unfold, the scripture shows it to us that we see that here's a funeral where there is no one in attendance. There are no songs being sung. There's no sermon being preached. And there are no prayers being prayed. But it is one of the most gracious and sweetest funerals we've ever seen. Because two men who simply love their Savior, willing to sacrifice the Passover because perhaps they've connected the dots. Perhaps they are celebrating the Passover and they know it. We see something so beautiful, so grand, and so amazing right here in the text given to us. It looks so obscure, but it's so clear. But remember, those watching at a distance, look at this last two, these last few verses Verse 54, it was the day of the preparation, which means Sabbath day begins at 6 p.m. So it's Friday, the evening of the Passover. They start at 6 for the preparation. Time is narrowing down, but the women aren't worried about it. They've got to go and see. So the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and they prepared spices and ointments. These men, they're not going to outdo us. They're not going to outdo us. We'll prepare the spices and the ointments and we're going to rest on the Sabbath because that is the command of Scripture. These ladies are wanting to be obedient to follow God, but their heart is with Christ. Why is this detail so important? Let me tell you why it's so important. Because just like many believe about Jesus that dying on the cross was plan B, God obviously isn't good enough to work through plan A. There are many people who deny the resurrection of Jesus. And believe it or not, extremely popular. Many theologians even believe this, that the reason that the women and the disciples believed that Jesus raised from the dead is because they went to the wrong tomb. Now remember, there's a bunch of these tombs. There were a lot of wealthy people. And there were a lot of root tombs in this area, in this particular region, where the best that we can tell, close to the school, there are lots of tombs. And it would be real easy to look and say, you know what, what if these women were mistaken? What if they didn't see where they took the body? And so they went to uh, try to find it and they found a tomb and they, there wasn't anybody there. And so they come up with this elaborate grand scheme that he raised from the dead, just like he said he would. There's just one problem. The Bible pays attention to details. And Luke says that these women followed the body of Jesus and they saw not just where they laid him, they saw how they laid him. 
They knew the details. They knew exactly where he was. They knew exactly what to look for. And folks, that's why we're going to see when these ladies show up, they were amazed because they knew exactly Jesus was supposed to be right here. We saw it with our own eyes. But he's not here. He's risen. Why do the details matter? The details matter because they still matter. You see, some of you, maybe you're identifying more with Joseph of Arimathea. You just are kind of a cowardly Christian. Maybe it's easy to follow Jesus under the radar. Let me encourage you. Take courage. The Bible shows us these things so that we might have confidence in Him so that when we're at work, when we're with our family, when we're with our friends, we don't have to be afraid about who we are in Jesus Christ. We don't have to be ashamed to be a follower of Jesus. We can be bold in our faith, knowing, exact, knowing that we know the truth, knowing that we pay attention to the details and the details lead us into greater discoveries of our own spiritual enlightenment. These details embolden us. So this week, how can you be greater in your courage? How can you have more boldness to make it known that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? Remember, this is situated in the gospel. Be bold. But let me just say this. Just love Jesus and follow Him. Because unwittingly, you may not realize who's listening to you and who's watching you. I was telling my wife this morning as I was getting prepared or as we were getting ready and coming here, I said, I'm really missing my granddaddy today. She said, are you preaching something that makes you think of him? I said, yes and no. My granddaddy did not make a ripple in this world. Nobody knows him. You wouldn't know him if you saw him. He was just an old country farmhand who lived his entire life on a farm. Known by very few people. But he was known by me. And when I look at the people that God unwittingly used just because of their love for Jesus, who has made such a great impact in my life, I think of my granddaddy first and foremost. In fact, his entire purpose in life may not have been to be anything but a farmer in Spearsville, Louisiana, working hard to provide, to love his wife, to show his family an example of what it means to be a loving, godly husband, a loving, godly grandfather, and to impact me. Could be. Sometimes it's just in being who we are. Loving God makes the biggest difference. In the grand scheme of things, God just uses us Unwittingly, he's working behind the scenes to do amazing things. My granddaddy's last words when he was dying of an awful disease, pancreatic cancer, when he had no wits about himself, couldn't keep a sentence together, I just asked him a simple question. I said, if you could say one thing to me, granddaddy, if that was the last thing you told me, what would it be? And he said, just love Jesus. That's all there is. God just uses us where we're at. And God could be using you, mom. He could be using you, dad. 
You could be using you, grandmother, you, grandfather. You've got little kids who are watching you. And you're just unwittingly living. But God has a bigger plan. You co-worker, you boss, you employee. How's God using you? Heavenly Father, embolden us this morning in the details. Help us to see that we can have confidence in you and we can just live our lives in love with you. Just saying, Lord, use me as you will. I just want to be open and available. God, perhaps there are some here this morning that feel like they have made so many mistakes that they can't be used. Lord, remind us that you use throughout Scripture all sorts of people that were filled with lives of mistakes. People who were awful sinners became great in the, in the hand of God. So Father, I pray today that we would recognize that even this sermon is being used of you. And maybe through this message, you're really gripping the heart of someone here this morning. And right now they can't stand it. They're about to burst from within because you are showing them who you are. And they can't even understand or comprehend what's happening to them right now. Lord, rend their heart. Humble them and help them to see that you are the Lord and Savior, the King of kings, the God of all gods, the creator of this world. And you created them especially for your purpose and for your glory. And may they call on you to be their Lord and Savior. And those of us, Lord, who have confessed you with our hearts and our mouths, may we, Lord, live lives that just are seeking after you, Lord, that every single day of our lives, every word said, every, every attitude that we uh, reflect, every response to a situation, Lord, that we would just desire to reflect Christ so that they would be able to see a glimpse of the cross in us. God, help us. Help us to be husbands and wives that minister to one another, to be mothers and daddies who love and minister and show an example to their kids. Help us to be grandparents who will invest in our kids and our grandkids even when they're older. Help us to never stop knowing that you never stop. You work even when we don't see it. You're at work. In Jesus' name, I pray these things, Lord. Amen.